Hello, and welcome to the Marotska Method podcast. I am your host, Adrienne Jezik. Here we get to talk about our personal growth and the ways we can express our vulnerability through authenticity. I create a space for my guests to share their experiences with deliberate cold exposure, and we talk about changing our health and our lives to focus on wellness. I share my journey and yours, focusing on mental, emotional, and physical health. Together, we face the challenges of growth through discomfort. Join us as we biohack our way towards a better life. Today, I have a really special guest with me here, Dean Hall. Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, just can't tell you how honored and thankful I am to join you of all people on this podcast. That means a lot to me. I know that you have uh, just mentioned, too, that you've been on several podcasts, and so I feel honored to have you as a guest and to really get to sit down and have, have a good gap session with you. We have not gotten to do this yet, so I'm looking forward no. to this. Yeah, and I first want to just start off, and I hope this doesn't put your listeners off, but it's uh, I'm not trying to sell anything uh, but I mentioned you guys in Morosco Forge on every one of my podcasts simply because uh, my forge, especially during the time of quarantine, was, I can't tell you, Bobby, my wife, will tell you how many times. It was nearly nightly. I said, I don't know what I'd do without my forge during this time. It was such a weird time, and there was so much stress. And as a marriage and family therapist, you know, I'm seeing nine, ten people a day that are freaking out. And then I'd get in my forge, and sometimes I was getting in it two, three times a day just to blast out the stress and kind of recalibrate. And uh, I, I tell everyone, it has been one of the single greatest lifts or elevations to my lifestyle, having it right here in my garage it's always at 40 to 42 degrees. That's that's my sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And it's there waiting for me anytime. And now, especially since I'm working at home, I know I can get in it. And it's what I call uh, poor man's shock therapy. Uh, <laughs> I can be just in the funkiest mood, jump in it, and three minutes later, I'm great. And I'm ready to go again. It's so better I than a coffee break or a nap. <laughs> yeah, it's better than a coffee break or a nap. Oh, gosh, <clears> yeah. Yeah, I, as a matter of fact, it's how I start out every one of my days. And I really, I, I've always been a tea drinker, but the last five years, I've started really drinking coffee. And uh, after I got my Morosco Forge, uh, within about two months, coffee went away um, because I'll, it's... <clears throat> I have a very specific routine of gratitude and light meditation and intention. And then the very next thing I do is turn on some fun music and get in my forge for three to five minutes. And that's how I, it, it's just a, a real great kind of wake up jolt and energizes my body, takes down all the inflammation, all the soreness from the day before and a uh, perfect way to start the day. I love that. I love that. It's like put, pushing a reset button. Dean, yeah. would you um, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners so that they can get to know who you are? Okay. Uh, I am a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist, 
and this is going to, I guess, I, I'm in denial about how old I am. Um, <laughs> that makes sense I, to me. I, I, I've been telling everybody, well, this is going to make me sound really old, but I've been a marriage and ther- uh, family therapist for 31 years now. And so I've uh, spent a lifetime before that. I was an art teacher and uh, absolutely loved it. Uh, spent my entire life trying to help people make our world a better place. And so that's been my mission in life. I grew up the son of two mountain climbers out here in Oregon. And I tell everybody that uh, before there were adventure athletes, there were Oregonians. (laughs) That Um, sounds right. (laughs) Back in the 60s and 70s, you know, most of us that grew up, uh, were in Oregon, grew up here. And we're the sons and grandsons of lumberjacks. And so we climbed mountains, we kayaked and canoed and rafted and, and swam across alpine lakes. I mean, it was just, it was pretty standard. Uh, if not that, just go out and fish as much as you possibly could or hike. Uh, that's what all of us did. Um, but now, in the 80s, everybody discovered Oregon, and it's, it's very rare to find a native Oregonian now. So... A lot of the adventure athletes have gone away, and they're mostly what I call tourists now. Um, but so I had a great childhood. It was, uh, you know, I'd come back uh, to school after a weekend, and and my buddies would say, hey, uh, you know, it rained all weekend. Uh, we watched the Scooby-Doo Marathon. What did you do? And I'm like, well, I could just climb Mount Hood. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it was, it was a pretty cool way to grow up. And that kind of set up, uh, I, I, I tell everybody, many times I believe you don't choose your dreams, your dreams choose you. Um, anytime a real dream just hits like a lightning strike to your heart, uh, there are foreshadows, there there are little glimpses that life has prepared you to complete that, whatever it is. And one of the things I've become fascinated about is how everyone's dream is different. You'd think, uh, especially here in America, it's, it's I want more money, a bigger car, a better house. I want to be famous. Um, but what I started doing in 2005 when I got fascinated with this is uh, first, first session asking clients, hey, what are your hopes and dreams? And even suicidal people, if you press them, I found nine out of ten times it's very rare that a person can't tell you what their dreams are or at least what they used to be before their life got so complicated. And they're never, I want a, a BMW. I mean, all that's fine. But that's rarely what a person's hope and dream is. It's very idiosyncratic and specific to who they are as people. And so that's that's been pretty fascinating. That is really fascinating. And I don't think that in all of my years of therapy, I have ever been asked what my hopes and dreams are. <laughs> that's kind of sad. I think uh, because, so. Yeah, because it's I, relevant. 
It is. You know, if we're not focusing on the hopes and dreams, what's what's the driving purpose? You know, if we're not focused on not to say not to say that we should always be focusing on that light at the end of the tunnel. There's been a common theme in my conversations lately where when focusing on the future, when focusing on what our desires, our goals, our hopes and our dreams are. I don't want all my focus to be on that light at the end of the tunnel. I want to be able to sit in the darkness. I want to be able to sit in the midst of it and be working that system in a way of acceptance, in a way of peace, in a way of knowing that one day there will be that light at the end of the tunnel. And this journey along the way is just as beautiful. Boy, that's well said and well put. I found most of the folks that I work with, particularly at first, though, they have been in that darkness so long, they can't imagine a light at the end of the tunnel. And what everyone doesn't seem to know is that light isn't at the end of the tunnel. As cheesy as it's going to sound, I realized, oh, this is going to sound cheesy. Um, It's right inside of you, and it is your hopes and dreams. And many times, it's your lifelong hopes and dreams. Uh, It's that instinct to be Adrian or Dean or whomever that has been hardwired into you, just like it has the rest of nature. A fish knows how to be a fish. A tree knows how to be a tree. You know how to be you, and I know how to be me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's innate. It's within all of us. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we're, yeah. I mean, we're in a time right now where that, that seems a little more prevalent than ever, that we can quite easily get lost and forget what our goal is, forget what our purpose mm-hmm. is. I think it's right. really difficult right now to plan anything for the future. You and I were just talking yeah. about how, you know, you had a swim scheduled and that had to get canceled. And, you know, I've had conferences scheduled that have either been rescheduled or canceled or rescheduled again and again. And so it can be a little difficult to plan for the future right now. And I think with that type of uncertainty, I think with that type of uncertainty, there is a, there, there's, there's an unknowing that makes it a little bit harder to focus on what the hopes and the dreams could be. And so I think it's not necessarily about scaling that back, but maybe realigning what's important right now. I right, think what's important right. right now is what are you doing to care for the self? Self-care, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're doing, what are you putting in your body? What are you doing to nourish yourself? What are you doing to nourish your relationships? Because that's another part of it. You know, we don't have that human connection that we typically have. You know, that whole landscape has been shifted. And so Boy, we have to really find... Has. Yeah, so we have to I miss it. seeing people's noses and mouths. <laughs> I just How do. interesting. Yeah. What what yeah. do you think it is about that part of the face? Well, um, you know, they say eyes are the window to the soul, but um one of the things I learned early on in therapy is yeah, you watch the eyes, but you really watch the mouth and nose the mouth and nose especially the mouth uh you know will very subtly in either a flash of a smile or a frown or you know pursed lips uh it's it's really hard to read a person 
or even connect with them if you can't see their mouth and nose. And it's and um, I haven't read any research, but I I would have to think it's extremely hard to identify a person if all you see is their eyes. And if you can't even identify them, you're not going to be able to connect with them. And so that's that's the problem I'm having is these subtle little what I'd call micro connections that happen all day every day with strangers that aren't happening now. I think it's the mirror neurons. Mm-hmm. And right. I notice sure. it because of my coaching practice. So mm-hmm. if you were to come in and want to try an ice bath for the very first time, and I'm coaching you through that experience, and you had a mask covering half your face, and I had a mask covering half my face, not only would we not be able to connect, but I would not be able to create that environment of safety and calm for you, because we're not activating mirror neurons. Part of what keeps people calm in that fight or flight response, especially in their first few plunges, is being able to look me in the eye, and see that I am calm. My whole face is calm. My mouth is calm. My nose is calm. My cheeks are relaxed. Everything about what I'm doing is relaxed. But if you don't visually see that and you're not able to connect to that, you're not going to have the same type of safe experience. And I don't think that we realize, like you said, those micro connections throughout the day, you know, like when I'm grocery shopping, that's when I notice it the most. I used to be able to go grocery shopping, and if I'm standing and waiting in line, I'm going to smile at the person in front of me. Maybe we're going to chat about, you know, the ripeness of the fruit or, you know, the silliness of anything. Like, name it. I don't know. Pick a thing. And now, with all of these masks, I don't feel the smile reaching my eyes when I'm trying to connect to someone in front of me. I feel like this is just, it's like it's not enough. You know, and I'm pretty expressive. I'm a pretty expressive person, especially (laughs) in the face. But yeah, but the (laughs) eyes don't feel like enough. I feel like there's a lot. There can be a lot lost in interpretation when all you're doing is seeing eyeballs. Well, and even those eyeballs have become so disconnected. It was fascinating being, you know, for three decades, a people watcher watching how quickly people got consumed with fear and shut down and so now uh, I have a hard time even getting people to make eye contact with me people look at their feet or are frantically scanning the whole area uh, but nobody's looking at you and nobody's connecting they're they're literally you put that mask on and you're in your own bubble that's interesting I think that there's definitely something to that. There's definitely something to that. And I think that the longer that we go in this kind of isolated manner, the harder it's going to be to connect to strangers, the harder it's going to be even to connect to people we know. Um, One of the things that we've been doing in my home since since the pandemic started, is we started social Sunday dinners, we already work with our crew, our crew already lives with the people they live with. And we've opened up our home on Sundays for dinner. Everyone, it's a potluck. We've got the ice bath. We've got the pool. People bring kids, you know, and we just open up our home so that we have that community environment at least once a week. And what's interesting is every once in a while, we'll get someone who doesn't normally come. And occasionally, 
those people that are not used to even just crowds of a dozen people are feeling incredibly uncomfortable because they're not used to large crowds anymore. And 12 people is not a large crowd. Right, right, right. And there's this, there's this unease. There's this, you know, complete, not only a lack of connection, but a fear of connection, a fear of being exposed or, and, and not exposed to the pandemic even just a fear of being exposed, feeling exposed. You know, you're, you've become accustomed to living in this little bubble of a house or an apartment or a condo or wherever it is that you live. Everyone that you're seeing is through three screens. So you've got that disconnection there. You know, people aren't, people aren't even doing their own grocery shopping for the most part in so many ways. And so when they're around people that are more than just their two to three or four or five family members, it feels overwhelming. And that's like just the sheer size of it, just the sheer size of of the crowds and people don't know where to put it. They don't know what to do with these feelings and these emotions. And so they retreat. I I love what you're doing though. What have you seen as being the positive benefits of these social gatherings? Oh my gosh, the kids, I think the kids more than anything. And the thing is, is that I, I don't, I, my, my boys came to me from another mother. So I got my boys at eight and 10 years old and the hard parts, I think the hardest parts mom took care of. So I I thank you, Janelle, from the bottom of my heart for uh, getting them through those, through those younger years. Um, But the, the connection with kids. And then when people do have that environment where you're breaking bread and you're sharing a meal and we have this huge bar that Jason built outside in the backyard that seats about 12 people. So we're all sitting around it and you are facing each other. And it is lovely in our backyard. You know, we've got the big, huge, we call it the charming tree and you hear the bell and the birds and it's that slowing down and breaking bread that helps deepen that connection when everyone's contributed to the meal. So everyone's brought a dish you're all sharing. You're talking about it. Ooh, what's in this? Ooh, what's in that? Oh, what are we going to, what's the theme going to be for next week? It's a deeper connection than if you were to call someone on the phone and talk for three hours. It's a different right. connection when, you know, like I said, every once in a while, there will be people there that aren't, aren't there seven, you know, the other six days a week, you know? And I think that it's that connection of sharing a meal being around a family style gathering and environment, being consistent about it. So even if you were nervous last week, if you show up this week and next week and next week, it gets easier and easier and easier, you know? So there's that. And then we're all doing ice baths as well. So if everyone, yeah. So if everyone there is taking an ice bath and you're getting that surge of norepinephrine and dopamine, you're automatically going to feel more at ease. You're going to feel less anxious. You're going to be less worried. Now, here's what's interesting. Even the kids, and we're talking 18 months, five years old, six years old, four years old, eight years old, the kids are taking ice baths. Oh, are they really? Yes. Fantastic. Because kids know. I mean, think about when you're oh, a yeah. kid, when you're a kid and you're swimming and it's pretty much winter time and mom's like, you know, time to get out and you're blue and you're shaking and you're shivering. And you're like five more minutes, five more. I just want five more minutes. We'll have cocoa when we're done. You know, kids innately know the benefits of cold water swimming. Kids already right. feel that really good 
surge of feel-good feelings from swimming in cold water, you know? And then they're also outdoors. They're, they're around community. This is what children need. And when we see that in the kids, when we see the kids swimming in the pool and interacting over food and, you know, joining in all the camaraderie, it helps us feel more at ease. Right. Of course it does. You uh, know? That's fantastic. I wish I wish more social groups were doing that. You know, I had to laugh when you uh, were talking about kids in cold water swimming. Um, one of the things that we would always do, and it started when I was about seven or eight, is we'd hike in and we'd hike so deep in, into the Oregon National Forests that, I mean, we might not see anybody for days. Wow. And because back then, just not as many people were getting out and adventuring to that degree. Right. And even now, you get a couple days out into a national forest, and you may only see two or three people a day. So it's still pretty wild and free. But we'd come to an alpine lake, and it became a family tradition. Hey, Dean, bet you can't swim across that. And this is what I'm, <laughs> what I'm talking about as far as uh, foreshadowing your dreams. And I, I'd say, oh, yeah, I can. And so I'd, I'd jump in, swim all the way across. And it would many times be uh, right around 50 to 55, um, sometimes because all of them would be glacier-fed. And so they were really cold. And, of course, we didn't have wetsuits back then. So my skinny little butt would swim all the way across and all the way back. And my parents would, you know... Uh, cheer for me and I, I thought it was a big deal and only a couple of years ago I'm driving along smiling thinking about those times and I thought wait a minute wait a minute I thought they were doing it to raise a resilient boy but I had shut up for five hours and they wanted some quiet <laughs> they're like let's wear this guy out a little bit yeah and with his face down in the water he can't talk oh my gosh <laughs> i think that's what it was about and and so i asked them and they chuckled but denied it but the chuckle gave everything kind of telling it's kind of telling. Yeah. telling yeah 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 but anyway so um was raised here in Oregon, played a lot of soccer, had soccer scholarships all over the U.S. Uh, just on a lark, I picked this tiny little school in Kansas for fun and went there not knowing I'd fall in love with a cute little Kansas farm girl and put myself in exile for love. <laughs> and so I built my life really around her and this tiny little community that she lived in. And uh, had a great life, really. Um, missed Oregon every day, but, you know, I made that decision. What I didn't know is I developed my whole adult identity around being her husband. Since I was an outsider from this tiny little town of 13,000, I was always, 30 years later even, Mary's husband. And it used to make me cry after she died. People would point to me and say, oh, there's Mary's husband. I think I'm not anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so when uh, she was diagnosed in um, uh, Wednesday, it'll be 10 years 
to the day that she was diagnosed with brain cancer. And by the time she was diagnosed, I mean, we hadn't seen any of the signs you usually see of dizziness, headaches, memory loss, any of that. So it all just came one day her, the right side of her face fell. Yeah. And so at first they thought she had something called Meniere's disease or something else. And something felt really off. So we got a brain scan and uh, found out that she had a huge, one of the largest brain tumors they'd ever seen with all sorts of fissures and fingers going throughout her brain. Um, and there was no way they could... Uh, operate to get it out because it was so massive and it was wrapped down around her brain stem all the way in the very back and 52 days later she was dead um, 15 days before our 30th anniversary and um, it was so devastating I'd had leukemia in 2007 but uh, I was sick pretty sick for about a year but I'd gotten over it I was in remission, I was doing well, but the grief was so intense that uh, it came back within about a year and brought with it lymphoma, and living in this small town without the small town girl was just awful, so I moved back to Oregon, not realizing, okay, I lost my life, now I'm giving up my my livelihood yeah, your whole community, and kind of identity. Mm-hmm. Um all my adult friends, and so uh, for three years, I was just really kind of lost living in a dark little duplex, um, kind of by myself, alone most of the time, and one of the things I started doing was binge-watching The Walking Dead, (laughs) and thinking, I've never binge-watched anything in my life, what the hell am I doing, and why The Walking Dead? And, and then I realized, oh, it's because I, I really understand both sides. I, I feel like there's been an apocalypse, mm-hmm. and I pretty much feel like a walking zombie. So yeah, I, your whole I world was turned upside down. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was a bad time. <laughs> By August of 2013, I'm six one and a half. Uh, when I'm really fit, I'm usually right around 200 to 215, depending on how much muscle I have. I got down to 158 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Um, biggest thing on me were my lymph nodes, especially right under my jawline. They were so big. I looked like some kind of weird chipmunk. Um, and I couldn't turn my neck much. And uh, then I had what my oncologist lovingly called my hockey puck under my right arm. It was the size, literally the size and shape of a hockey puck. Um, and that was and, a swollen lymph node? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just really, really sick, and in August of 2013, I got up, and I had a hard time getting to the bathroom. I was just so immune-suppressed, and just uh, one of my friends who's a gifted physician back in Kansas calls leukemia uh, mono on crack. It, it suppresses your immune system, and you're just tired all the time, um, and so I got up and uh, had a hard time just getting to the bathroom. And I glanced into the mirror, and I didn't recognize myself. There was this tiny, skinny, twig guy. Um, Biggest thing on him were his lymph nodes, his elbows, and his knees. Um, You could see my hip bones and all my ribs and my shoulder blades. And it was like, 
who the hell is that? And then I looked up and I caught my own gaze and my eyes were so sad. I'd never seen such sad eyes and I just bust out bawling. I thought, you know, I've had a good run. I've done everything I wanted to do. I, I taught, I, I had a lot of fun doing that. I, I've been a, you know, a therapist. I've written a book. I, for my lifetime, my speaking career was really taking off. And, you know, I've accomplished everything I needed to accomplish. If I just let this thing take me, nobody will ever know. And that sounds pretty good. I'm just kind of done. You're just tired. And then I, what's that? You were just tired. Yeah, tired and incredibly sad. Yeah. And then, like a flash, I hit, I remembered my daughter. And uh, I just adore that girl. And she's adorable. And she just lost her mama a couple years before. And now she's 21. And she has never let her grade point average slip. She's just, she's just powered through this thing. It's been horrible for her, but she's been way stronger than I've been. And I thought she deserves me to try my best. And I've been fascinated with this hopes and dreams thing and the light inside of you being able to help you have the power to come back. I'd read years and years ago, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and that was his basic premise that he found in Auschwitz, that if a person that came into Auschwitz, it didn't matter how physically fit, he found the big athletes were the first to go. Um, he, he found that if a person was passionate about living past this, that was their purpose. And the two main uh, purposes he found uh, were, uh, I want to see my loved ones again, or I want to live to kill some Nazis. Um, and if people really latched onto those, they overcame incredible uh, odds. And, and, and so I knew this because I'd seen people overcome all sorts of things, uh, but I just didn't care about anything. And so, I mean, there were things that were reasonable. I should write another book. I should build a practice. I should maybe start speaking. But I, I, none of that even got me a little excited, uh, not even enough to get off the couch. And so I started meditating and praying and asking, uh, what could be the lightning strike that brings me back to life? That was, those were the actual words. And for weeks, nothing. And so about three or four weeks into this thing, and I'd stop about five or six times a day. I'd start every day this way, end every day this way, because I, I don't know if your listeners know it. A lot of people don't, even a lot of therapists, which cracks me up. Um, the brain, by its very nature, cannot ignore a question. Your brain has to answer every question you ask. Problem is, we ask really awful questions. Like, <laughs> why does everybody hate me? Or yeah. why am I such a big fat loser? Well, you ask a question like that, your brain's going to give you about 100 answers. Yeah, it's going to throw um, you into an anxiety-filled tailspin. Oh, gosh, yeah. Or just swamp you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I knew the power of a question, so I asked 
several times a day very prayerfully, almost like I was watching Jeopardy or something and trying to remember a, a trivia uh, question. You know, you, you concentrate on somebody's name you can't remember, and then you let it go, and then later that day when you're brushing your teeth, it comes to you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a natural brain. Um, uh, that's, that's the way our conscious and subconscious mind kind of dance together. And what a lot of people don't know is that same phenomenon works exactly in the same way for the deepest questions of your life. So I was asking this deep question, and boy, three weeks later, nothing. So I thought, well, you know what? I could unpack my boxes and clean up this dark little duplex and maybe even create a man cave. Uh, My grandfather had uh, he was one of the first ones to, and he even had the patent on it, and then he died of a heart attack. Um, he created the modern ice axe. He was a mountain climber. And I've got some of his old antique ice axes, and I thought, I'll, I'll hang those on the wall and, and make this kind of cool. What's and an so ice I'm axe? Unpacking, unpacking boxes, and I come across a journal that I was forced to keep when I was in sixth grade because you know, sixth grade boys don't keep journals. I, I think maybe they do now, but back in the day, no, that just wasn't a thing we did. Dean, to interrupt and really quick, what, what is an ISAC? ISAC? Yeah. Uh, it's, um, it, you've seen them. It, it, uh, a lot of people that aren't mountaineers call them ice picks. Oh, uh, oh, ice axe. Okay. A large kind of blade uh-huh. with kind of a shovel blade on the end uh-huh. and a pole coming out of it. Okay. And so you had yeah. some of these, and now you're digging up some old journals from sixth grade. Right. And I thought, you know, I wonder what the 11 year old Dean had to say. Because <laughs> so, he had to say a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And so, uh, first page. When I get old, I gotta, not I've got to or I want to, I gotta, um, climb Mount Everest and swim the English Channel. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I gotta, I I just gotta. I thought I was going to grow up to be this, you know, sponsored adventurer, right? That was always my dream, uh, to climb, uh, the world's seven tallest mountains. You know, that's, that's where I thought I was going until I landed in Kansas. And um, I'd forgotten. I literally had forgotten that that was my old dream growing up, really, until about 17 or 18. And so I thought, okay, I've, I've had some friends climb Everest. I know it takes a lot of money. I, I've got that. I could probably do it. But my immune system is so suppressed. I don't think I could uh, eat the food in Kathmandu. <laughs> um, or uh, and survive. Handle the, yeah, handle handle the elevation. Um, so uh, that's out. But something about swimming the English Channel just struck my heart like that lightning strike. And it's like, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. And then I started fighting with myself, brain versus heart. Brain's like, Dean, uh, you got two forms of cancer. Don't care. Dean, you're down to 158 pounds. Oh, this will be good for me. Uh, Dean, this could kill you. Um, I'm dying anyway. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, I didn't 
I called up my physician friend, and he's like, Dean, you get in a public pool, and your immune system's so bad it could kill you. And I'm like, I'm dying anyway. I'm not going to die on a couch watching Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, you're not going to double um, die. Right, right. Ah, I've never heard anybody put it like that. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, because it would be. It would, it would exactly be that. And I'd been double dying for the last three years. Yeah. So anything Every had to be better than what you death. were doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you for that gift. Yeah. Yeah. So without thinking, I went to the local club, signed myself up, jumped in the pool. And when I pushed off, because in the 80s and 90s, I'd been a triathlete. Um, and I thought I was good, but, you know, I, I, I wasn't that good. <laughs> but I loved the endurance of it that it took, and I loved pushing myself. And, and I loved this. I, I'd usually come out of the lake or the pool in the top ten, and then I'd pass everyone on the bike, and then everyone would pass me on the run. It was, it was usually very humiliating. Um, <laughs> But I loved the swim parts, and pushing off the wall is like, oh, I remember you, and it felt like I got a piece of me back, and I um, knew that the English Channel was just a little over 20 miles long, so I thought, you know, I'm so sick, I'm not going to get out of this damn pool until I swim 10 laps. And the 10 laps took me over an hour because wow. uh, I'd swim one length and just have to just hang on to the side of the pool and breathe onto the pool deck and go and do it again. Uh, and then something that my dad taught me to do when I was about five or six, you go till you think you can't go anymore and then you do one more. Yeah. Um, and so I did 11 laps and then every day I tried to add one to that and I started feeling like me again and very soon my numbers started going in the right direction my head started to clear and by right around Christmas it, I was getting out of the pool feeling good I was getting muscle tone back and I don't know if you know what well, you of all people probably know a lot about the lymph system but a lot of your listeners probably don't the lymph nodes are just little strainer sacs all throughout your uh, blood veins. And they're little junctions, and they're actually filters, but they don't work or move at all unless blood is pumping through them. Right. And so uh, by swimming and getting this cardio, I was pumping those lymph nodes, and a lot of my lymph nodes were going down at least enough to where I could be somewhat comfortable. Um, And so that was cool, too. But I'm getting out of the pool, and it hits me. Who cares if another middle-aged man puts on a Speedo and swims to France? It does the world no good. And in my case, it's probably not going to be a pretty picture. So um, I started asking myself, what could I do where... I would actually be doing the world some good. And uh, within a week, I remembered when I'd been out here for a bicycle race in 1984, 
and I was sitting over the Willamette River. I've always called it Mama River because I was born only four blocks from the Willamette. The Willamette's 187 miles long. It's Oregon's longest river. It starts up in the mountains, comes down through our state capital, uh, keeps flowing through the Willamette Valley vineyards, and uh, has been one of the greatest uh, sources of commerce and trade throughout Oregon history, and then goes through Portland, and is really why Portland's Portland, and then it uh, dumps out into the Columbia River. And so it's just a real part of the state. And I found out that no one had ever swum it, and in 1987, I'm standing over it, and it's just looking beautiful. And I said to my dad, hey, has anybody ever swum this whole thing? And he's like, I don't know where you come up with these ideas. That's the <laughs> dumbest thing I've ever heard. And by him saying that, it kind of set the hook. Yeah. Um, but then I got busy with life, and, you know, I went back to Kansas and forgot about it. And it Until came now. back. Yeah. Uh, 30 years later and uh, that's that's what makes me believe that dreams don't have a time stamp on them mm -hmm. that you can always pick them back up and get back to them and I found that no one had still swum the whole thing and so that's what I decided to do that became my aim so now you did have like a renewed purpose you had another mission. You had something else you needed to accomplish before you decided your time was done. Right. And it gave me something to think about other than how much I'd lost, yeah. how much I missed Mary, how much my life sucked, how dark things had gotten. And I, my, my greatest fear, luckily we were able to keep Mary home and keep her comfortable while she was going through that uh, letting go and dying process, uh, but she died on our couch. And one of my greatest fears was that my daughter see her second parent die on a couch. Yeah. And so it gave me, I thought, you know, I might die in the Willamette, but I'm going to go down swinging. And even if I die, even if this thing kills me, she'll have a legacy of courage um, that I will have left her with. And so that offered such relief. Yeah. And so you did it. Yeah, yeah. And dreams are so cool, especially when they're, they are lightning strikes, um, because then they've got a real specific, I've found as I've talked to people, a very, very specific uh, life cycle. They start off, and they equally excite you and terrify you, and then you're all alone for months when you share them with somebody, especially a big dream. Uh, people try to talk you out of it or tell you that you're stupid for even thinking that way. And or they'll have a hundred different too. ideas of what a better idea is. They'll have a hundred different suggestions. Well, have you thought about this? Well, what about that? Right. Well, what about this? Right. And and yeah. it can get very discouraging at times oh, when you're like, yes, yeah. I've thought of that. Yes, I'm aware of this. And I'm going to do it anyway. Right. 
But most people never get to the, and I'm going to do it anyway, they get talked out of it. Only to cycle back around 5, 10, 15, or in my case, 30 years later. Um, the reason I didn't do it in 1984 is I went home, and I'm pouring through maps of the Willamette. Mary's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to swim the entire length of the Willamette next summer. She's like, how long is that going to take? And I'm like, three or four weeks. And she's like, Dean, we're saving for a house. Mm. Are you going to get paid during those three or four weeks? Oh, no, no, no. Um, how are you going to take three or four weeks off when we're trying to be responsible and set up our lives? And I'm like, oh, never thought of that. And so I dropped it because yeah. it seemed like the responsible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And looking back now, I didn't save that much in one month. <laughs> you know, it would have been a much, a much more responsible thing to do to follow my dreams. But yeah, so a dream has a specific life cycle. And then the middle, uh, some people are coming on board, but you hit that no man's land where it's not fun. You're working hard. Nothing seems to pay off. There are a lot of setbacks. There's some glimmers of hope, but not enough to really energize you. And then you hit that tipping point where all of a sudden, every the doors start flying open. Everybody's on board. Everybody wants to help you, and you do this thing beautifully. Um, it's still hard, but you've got a lot of support. But people expect that support right from the start. And if it's a big dream. Uh, I've rarely seen a person ever get that right off the bat. So that's something your your listeners have to be ready for. You know, I think that's part that's a really valuable thing to touch on as well because we're in a culture now where you know our children are all exposed to success. They see mm-hmm. success in YouTube and gamers. They see mm-hmm. success mm-hmm. on TikTok. They see success because that's where the highlights are. And in a lot of cases, what I've seen is people who are afraid to even try because they instantly feel, well, I'm not any good. I'm not going to try because I'll just fail. But no one is highlight. It's not as common to see the highlights of the successful people and where they began. You know, you just have to start and do the thing. You have to be okay with failure, adversity, people being naysayers, you have to decide that that is part of the process and be okay with that level of discomfort along the way or else there is no room for exponential growth. We don't get to wake up and try a new thing and just be amazing at it. I mean, maybe when Cher sang her first song, she was. I don't know. (laughs) I wasn't there. But what is highlighted are the successes. You know, we don't want to talk about the messy stuff. We don't want to talk about the times that we stumble and fall and fail and have to get back up again and what the rejection looks like and what the discouragement looks like and what the lack of support looks like and what those deep, dark hours look like when you know that you have to get up the next day, pull up your bootstraps and do it all over again, despite what is coming at you. We don't get to live a life of peachy keen existence. It doesn't exist. And yet when you look on media, when you look online, when you see what's being projected out there, it's like that's all there is. Right. 
you don't get to see the torture of the process. You just get to see the bright lights of the success. Right. And, and I, that's not the way it works. It's not real life. Real life yeah. is finding a way to be in the dark, finding a way to be in the midst of the discomfort and sitting alongside of it. Not running from fear, not running from pain, not running from anger, any of those things, or grief even. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. sitting alongside of it and understanding that that also makes the fruit sweeter. Mm -hmm. And prepares you to do all of that prepared me to do what I do, and to this day, I thought once I swam the 187 miles, uh, all of a sudden, everybody be doing it, trying to beat my time, and to this day, still no one has done it, because it's so overwhelmingly difficult. People have started to train for it and have talked to me about it, but when you're a week or two into a swim, and the news media is the news media sometimes will give you a little bit of notoriety at the first, but then by about day three or four, they're done. Yeah, they, the buzz fades. They'll come back at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you're swimming in 40-degree water for eight to ten hours a day. It's raining. You're cold. Nobody's around. Nobody seems to care. And it's just agonizingly difficult um, because it was so cold, even with the three mil wetsuit, and I was you were to get sick. out every, every 30 to 45 minutes because I was going into deep core hypothermia. And you were and sick so I, on top of it. Yeah, yeah, I only had 6% body fat, um, so I didn't have a lot on my bones to protect it. Um, and so I'd have to get out after swimming a couple miles uh, you know, and do jumping jacks and burpees and run in place on the riverbank to get my body core temperature back up, eat a little bit because I was consuming eight to 10,000 calories a day, mm -hmm. and then get back in this freezing-ass cold water and go for another 30 or 45 minutes and do this from 8 in the morning to 6 at night. What were you so, feeding yourself during this time? What's that? What were you feeding yourself while you were doing this? What kind of fuel were you putting in your body? Yeah, you'd think. It, it's horrifying. I'm embarrassed to tell you. I've uh, become a lot more picky. Um, but I tried all sorts of goos and gels and triathlete food and uh, all sorts of uh, special nutrition, and I just would throw all those up. And so then I tried all sorts of, uh, like, oatmeals and carbs and pastes, and I'd throw those up. Mm -hmm. And so for the Willamette Swim, and this to me shows the power of cold water immersion, um, because I'll just say this so we, I don't forget to tell I didn't know anything about cold water immersion. Never heard of Wim Hof. Mm -hmm. I was just a guy doing a following thing. his dream, trying to raise money for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and trying to inspire other cancer patients to refuse to give up. That's all I was doing. I didn't know anything about cold water immersion. I didn't know anything about the Blue Mind or 
how being in, on, around, or by water can change your brain state, and it's now the go-to treatment for trauma. Yep. Um, and so uh, this stupid guy was eating Lunchables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's and crackers, meat, and cheese, okay? Yeah, highly processed. <laughs> Filled cheese. with sodium and, and preservatives. Oh, gosh. You, it, there's so many things. I looked at the back of a Lunchable not long ago and just shook in fear thinking, okay, uh, you know, nature is powerful if it can heal my dumb ass while I'm eating this. But you don't know um, what you don't know. Right. And well, and you I don't... a and little you, bit it was it was simply uh, common sense, if you will. Um, it, I was just trying to find. I knew I'd have to eat a lot, mm -hmm. and you know, when you're swimming that far and that hard for that long for weeks on end, you got to have something that will stay down. Yeah, and it's not like you have a kitchen right there. Right. You know, you're not gonna and, you're, you're not gonna like co go over and set up a grill for forty five minutes. And uh, the nice thing about the Lunchables is they could be floating around in the bottom of the kayak, and they stayed dry until you open. Um, <laughs> that was the other go -to. They were fully preserved. <laughs> oh, gosh. They probably wouldn't have. They probably would have stayed dry even if they'd been opened. But, uh, yeah. But um, in my, in my uh, swim in Ireland, uh, we we ate. I still ate uh, beef and cheese, but it was interesting to you know because one of the things I did to get rid of my cancer is I I radically cleaned up my diet, and so I eat some beef, but it's got to be grass fed, open range kind of beef. And when we went to Ireland, very quickly within about a week, week and a half. All of us felt better, our hair looked better, our skin looked better, and we found over in Ireland they've got very strict uh, rules and regulations, especially with their beef and meat products, and most of them are farm to table within a day or two. So um, it's the quality of what you're island. eating. Yeah. So it's also and the so quality. over there I ate much better. That, you know, that... That means so much. We don't think all the time about what is this thing that I'm putting into my body. This is going to turn into right. skin cells in about, <clears throat> you know, it takes what I think it's like five to seven years for a complete body cell turnover or something like that. And Actually, so it's only it's only uh, we have an entirely new body. And this is what I depended on both times that I had cancer within right around 15 to 18 months every cell in your body has regenerated that's beautiful left off and regenerated that's so beautiful. it happens much more quickly than you'd think so then if you're thinking of this right if you're thinking of what is the fuel that i'm putting into my body because eventually it's going to be on the surface of my skin right you know right. when i'm looking in the mirror and i'm seeing you know dry tired stressed not fortified you know lackluster color what was I eating 18 months right. ago? And right. so now when we're reaching for food, when we're reaching for fuel for the body, if we're reaching for things that are going to fortify us, if I'm thinking of what I want 
I don't normally do breakfast, but I'm, if I'm thinking what I want for lunch, excuse me, uh, what I want for lunch, I want to think of what that's going to look like on my face 18 months from now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, that's, that's, I know that's for a great certain way of thinking about it. When I started, when I got sick and I started paying attention to the things I was putting into my body and my skin mm-hmm. started to change, I'd mm-hmm. always taken care of my skin topically. I had a past life as an esthetician. I was all about making the skin pretty. I wasn't yeah. thinking about the ways I was feeding it from the inside out. And when I started making those changes and seeing that on my face, looking in the mirror and saying, wow, I am glowing. I am vibrant. I am pushing 40. And I feel like I look better than I did at 29. Wow. And it's because of what I'm putting into my body. And some Mm -hmm. of that is what I'm not putting in still with the intermittent and extended fasting. I am Mm -hmm. such a believer in starving the body on occasion so that it can start to digest some of those cells that don't belong. Yeah, you know, we talked about how none of your therapists ever ask you what your hopes and dreams are. One of the things, as I've watched people particularly and gone through my journey, and like you, found how desperately pivotal and primary uh, your food and your nutrition is and uh, to, to your overall wellness. One of the things I become absolutely convinced of is it. I, as a matter of fact, I can I can promise you in 30 years I've never had anyone highly anxious or highly depressed that doesn't have a terrible uh, way of eating or a, a very poor nutrition plan. And so, in 2019, I, I'm always running these little uh, quiet studies. Um, and this one became spontaneous. One of the first clients I had in early January of 2019 uh, was a woman that came in, and she was highly anxious, had been pretty much her whole life. And uh, she was talking to me about how she and her therapist had become, or psychiatrist had become best friends over 10 years, and they were trying to uh, perfect this cocktail of antidepressants and they were quibbling over half a milligram. Mm. And I said, well, before we go into that, cause she really wanted me to help them perfect this antidepressant cocktail. And I'm like, well, tell me what you eat and drink. Yeah. And oh my gosh, it was horrible. She was drinking like four monsters and I probably shouldn't mm. say a brand name. Sorry. Um, uh, four, uh, call them out. Drinks. Yeah. Call them out. <laughs> yeah energy drinks a day and uh, you know binging on chocolate cake and, and doing all sorts of things that I mean most people would know would affect the mind and the body and once I could get her to change the way she ate uh, she started getting better and so I started asking people first session if they had um, been on medication for three years or more and been with the same med provider, I started asking them, uh, has your med provider ever asked you what you eat or drink? And that year, um, 2019, I had 23 people I asked that to. Guess how many Zero. their med provider had asked them what they ate or Zero. drink? Right. I was shocked. I was shocked because 
you know, the pharmaceutical industry has done such a good job of brainwashing us into believing that our brain chemistry is solely dependent on our DNA and our genetics. Mm-hmm. But that's only about 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, 40% of brain chemistry is what you've had to eat or drink in the last two weeks. And then the other two components are how are you moving your body and what are you thinking? Yeah, What are thoughts. you concentrating on? But the biggest part of that pie is what are you eating and drinking? That makes perfect sense to me because one of, one of the autoimmune conditions that I have reversed was a gastrointestinal autoimmune condition. So, of course, one of the things I had to start with was an elimination diet. I had to figure out what in the foods that I was eating that was causing irritation, which meant paring it down to bare, 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 bare bones to get down to the nitty gritty of, okay, I cannot eat bananas. I cannot eat oatmeal. I cannot eat eggs. Um, And some of these things are still true to this day. And that's okay. It's okay if there are things that you cannot eat, but I can eat three cups of leafy greens every day. I can eat dark berries. I can eat protein. There are things that I can fortify my body with that are going to eventually end up on the surface of my skin, but are definitely going to affect my brain chemistry. So I think it's really interesting that you started asking your clients that because that's what I've done since the beginning of my becoming a deliberate cold exposure coach. And I used to do this even in skincare because as it related to the skin, but now it's a much more well-rounded approach is what are you doing for your self-care? How much water are you consuming daily? And what are you putting in your body? What are you eating? What are you drinking? How often? And how does that relate to your physical output? Because not all of us are working outside building forge for eight to 10 hours a day in 115 degree heat. Some of us have office jobs. Like it's, it's okay if you don't have a job, that means you're not busting your, you know, breaking your back and doing all of those things where you have to eat 6,000 calories a day. That's fine. It's the quality of the food that you're putting in. And I never call it a diet. It's never about what we diet on. It's our food regimen. And it's different for everyone. Not everyone's body is meant for meat. Not everyone's body is meant for vegetarian. Not everyone's body is meant for pescatarian. Not everyone's body. We are all different. And you don't know how that piece of chocolate cake affects you if you're already tired, if you're already sick, if you're eating three and four pieces a week. You won't know until you've had separation from that chocolate cake for 30 to 60 days. And then you introduce it as a sole item, and then you can say, oh, I know exactly how this feels. Now I walk through a grocery store, if I see a bag of Cheetos or if I see chocolate cake, it doesn't look like food to me. It looks like plastic. My brain can now associate what are whole foods, what are not whole foods, and do I still occasionally have a piece of chocolate cake? You're darn right I do. And it clears through my system a lot faster because my body is already on a higher level of optimization because of what I feed it normally. So it's okay to branch off. It's okay to occasionally have something. I'm not saying don't do that, but why? What void are you trying to fill? What hole are you trying to fill? What purpose are you trying to achieve? What is your goal? If your goal is to feel good, you're not starting your day with energy drinks. Right, right. 
or even throwing them in midday when you hit that slump. No. In yeah. fact, when people ask me, what's the best time of day to take an ice bath? For me, the answer is almost always around three or four o'clock. Because right. I'm, you know, I'm up with the birds, I'm up with the sun. And by around three or four o'clock, I start to feel that midday slump. And I could reach for a cup of coffee. I could take an hour out of my day and do a quick yoga session. I could do those things. Right. Or right. I could take three to five minutes sit in an ice bath and feel like I just had an espresso in a yoga class. Yeah, I, uh, I work from eight in the morning to one. And then I take a break from one to four and eat and flirt with Bobby, read a little <laughs> bit. And then uh, one of my favorite, I might take a light nap or meditation. But then, and then I work from four to eight that night. And I do that three days a week. So that I've got four day weekends every weekend, which makes it fun. But those are long days. And yeah. the way I've found to prepare myself for the evening and get over that slump is I will get in the ice bath and really just boost everything. And you can feel the energy. You can feel your body coming back to life. And then I'll get out. And one of the, the biggest things I did that I think were, was primary, as a matter of fact, my oncologist blurted out that it was my form of chemo because thankfully I never had to do chemo or radiation. Um, and they wanted me to, but I, I've seen what it did to people. And what a lot of people don't know is that there's only a 9% chance that it's going to help. Right. And doctors present that it's, it's something you've got to do. It's your only choice. And that's just not true. Um, and so he blurted out, I started juicing with a masticating juicer and very quickly all my numbers started really being boosted and I found that is truly the perfect energy drink is, uh, a lot of times I'll do kale and green apples because the two unlock proteins and enzymes in each other and then add in some ginger turmeric or lemon but sometimes one of my favorites because it's easy to do and easy to get down is just pure celery yeah celery is a, a miracle food salt in it it's only found in celery that's really really good for unlocking uh the bios um the bioenergetic system in the body so Celery, I've heard, is a miracle food. It can help with blood pressure. It can help with uh, insulin. It can help with your mood. It can help just just overall help the body absorb the nutrients of the other foods that you're eating. It's like one of those kind of booster power foods, too. And and you don't think about it. I, I never thought about it before I realized this, that, you know, it's just this green, kind of almost flavorless, sort of crunchy vegetable. But when you start juicing it and drinking it, you will see a difference in the body. And I think oh, yeah. anytime we're juicing um, our vegetables and our fruits, it you know you're just taking away of the energy that it takes for the body to process it. Uh, one of the habits, one of the physical habits that I changed when I started making these uh, food regimen changes was the way that I was eating. So it's important for me to put my hands on my food when I'm preparing it. It's important for me to sit down without distraction when I'm eating. It's important for me to take every single bite. And I got this from 
the book The Island by Aldous Huxley, where he talked, they do that little, you know, before dinner, it's not really a prayer. You just kind of put a bite of the food in the mouth and you think of everything that went into bringing that food to your table. And it's I, an in- I first found out about this process from Deepak Chopra. Yeah, intentional and, eating. Right. I, I freaked my wife, my first wife, Mary, because she was, you know, from Kansas and, and, you know, I'm from Portland. So there were some real culture shocks for both of us many times throughout our, our 30 years together. And, and Deepak said, you know, you should uh, take the green bean in your mouth and and thank the bean, and then thank the farmer who planted the bean, and then thank the soil. And, you know, you don't do any of this out loud, so I started doing this. And, you know, of course, my meals, a small meal taking me like an hour. Mm -hmm. And um, it it became a family joke. She and and Bree would say, oh, my gosh, if you're going to do that thankfulness kind of eating, we're we're just – we're, we're not going to join you on that anymore. That's too weird. <laughs> but but I think the approach, I mean, you don't have to be probably as dorky as I was about it, but I think that approach is so healthy and so important. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it. The things that we do, we're almost always rushing to the next thing. You know, it's just as a culture and a society, we're always rushing to the next thing. So it's like, well, I have to hurry up and eat dinner so I can hurry up and do the dishes so I can hurry up and get ready for bed and I can hurry up and do the, no, just stop, just stop. My schedules are, my schedule is so full every single day of the week. I can get really overwhelmed with the amount of things I have to do in a day. And I just sent, I set 15 reminders and wherever I am in that moment, that's where I am in that moment. And when you're doing that with eating and you're focusing on chewing and you're taking away so much of our digestive process is breaking down the foods that we failed to chew because we were so, in such a hurry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's and one if thing. You, I, if, you, if you do the math, um, we're all in a hurry for what? To die? Um, yeah, I don't know. And when I saw my wife die, I realized oh my gosh, there's so much I still wanted to say or do with her and I'll never get a chance on this earth anyway. And um, what are we all in such a mindless kind of lockstep march toward? We need to live now. And so that's one of the things that's really become my very simple approach to life and to accomplishing these big swims and the big dreams, the the Shannon, the, the river in Ireland, was so much harder than the Willamette um, because of many things I didn't know. Uh, one was that the riverbed was flint and shale, and when it cracks, it leaves these razor-sharp edges. So anytime Ooh. you touch uh, or try to crawl out of the river, um, it just cut, cut my hands and feet up. And then... Um, we had a 20, 15 to 25 mile an hour wind coming from the south, and we were swimming south. So we had a headwind almost, well, it was 23 out of 25 days. I mean, it was just agonizingly difficult, way harder. And, and the reason we went over there is I wanted my daughter to have the same time on the river that I had. I wanted her to get a chance to heal. And so... Um, we uh, went over there, and uh, every day it just looked impossible. 
And so I thought, I brought uh, my daughter over here at the start of her adulthood to help her heal. And basically, I'm just going to show her how to fail. (laughs) That sounds like real smart parenting to me, Dean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, God what am I going to do to turn this around and make this a good thing? And so I thought I'm going to coalesce everything I've learned from the people who've gotten better that I've watched for 30 years. And I broke it down to three steps. And to this day, almost every day, almost everything I do, I just use these three steps, especially if it's a big thing, especially if it's a hard thing or a difficult thing I'm facing. Um, and the first step is face your fear. Um, acknowledge that you got fear and don't run from it. Like you were saying earlier, run toward it or through it, but not from it. Right. And the way I face my fear is I take the second step. And the second step is just take the next step. Concentrate on the next step, not the next 50 steps and what the possible outcome might be. Right. And so when I was over there, I'd be like, I'd wake up, and I'd wake up with a thud thinking, oh, shit, how are we going to make it? Will we make it? Will we make it through this day? No. What's the next step? Well, get your butt out of bed. Yeah. What's the next step? Eat Brush breakfast. your teeth. What's yeah. the next step? Yeah. Get to the river, you know? Yeah. And, and I next stepped it through 150 miles to become the first person to swim the entire length of a river that Vikings explored. Um, so that was pretty cool. And then what's step um, three? Yeah, yeah. And then the third step is my favorite, and the reason I brought all this up is we're talking about it. Once you've taken the next step, just enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah. Just be there, and when it's time to take the step after that, you will. But, for example, what's the next step? We'll get out of bed. Okay, how can I get up out of bed and have fun doing it? Well, I can be grateful. I can think, doggone it, I've always wanted to be in Ireland, and here I am. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the next step? Well, the next step's eat breakfast. Okay, how can I do that and really enjoy it? Well, I'm here in Ireland, you know, and, <laughs> and I just I just would do that. And the fun thing about those three steps is it keeps you moving forward, but not ahead of yourself. Because we can't predict the future anyway. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what later today will bring. We have no idea. We can have an idea. We can we can create a schedule. We can we can yeah. hope and dream and plan all that we want. Yeah. But the yeah. thing is, the more ways that we find to be present in the moment, we are already maximizing every moment. And if you're maximizing right. every moment, you are guaranteeing a future, a fruitful future. And a pleasant one, and no regrets. I struggle um, with that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I get yeah. so busy, and I can get really overwhelmed with my schedule or really overwhelmed with mm-hmm. the amount of things that I have to accomplish in a day or a week or a month, and mm-hmm. I can stop. I can say, where am I right now? What am I doing right now? What is the thing I'm doing right now that will serve my greater purpose? Mm-hmm. And am I doing that? And sometimes that means sitting down and taking a break. That's the one thing mm-hmm. that I'm trying to teach myself above all else oh, nice. is as yeah. soon as I get overwhelmed, as soon as I'm starting to feel rushed or anxious or like everything is too much, that's when mm-hmm. you're supposed to stop. Right. 
You're not right. supposed to push through. It's a benefit right. when you feel that level of being overwhelmed and stressed out and anxious to just stop. Be still. Or for me, a lot of times my overwhelm is getting 50 steps ahead or thinking I'm doing this poorly or uh, how would somebody else do it better? And so my one question I ask myself constantly because I, I've been trying – part of my cancer recovery is trying to return to that kid who was so happy. I was just a happy, chatty kid and having a good time through life. And one of the questions that used to drive my parents nuts that I asked myself all the time is they'd say, well, you got to mow the lawn. Okay, um, how can I do that and have fun? Mm -hmm. Like, what? No, mowing the lawn's not fun, Dean. Just go mow the damn lawn. Okay, but I'm going to try to, and so I try to find out. I was always thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to make it fun. Or I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to have even more fun after. I was always thinking about what is fun. And you talk to any kid, and unless they've been you know, traumatized or abused, they're all about the fun. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. And so why, why do we let that go? Um, I don't you know. You can be a very <laughs> healthy. Once I started having fun, I started finding the strength and the good sense to create world records yeah. um, at my age. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it, once you start having fun, you're not, it's, it's the most responsible choice you can make, not what we've been taught, which is the most irresponsible choice you can make. You know, yeah. and that goes back to our thoughts. Our thoughts feed our bodies. Our thoughts oh, yeah. change our brains. And when right. we are changing our thoughts and changing our brains, we can change it for the better. Or we can right. create an environment of despair. Right. Uh, my husband, Jason, just said today, he says, I realize, I, I think he said he saw it on a meme or something like that. And he says, mm -hmm. when you have anxiety, it's really just a bunch of conspiracy theories about yourself. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, well, how perfect. funny is that? And how... How does a conspiracy theory about yourself benefit you? How does comparing yourself to yourself or to others or to where you think you thought you should be by now, how does that help? It doesn't. So if right yeah. now what I'm doing is, you know, recording a podcast with my friend Dean, that's what I'm doing. If an right. hour from now I'm folding a load of laundry or I'm putting a poly coat on a forge, that's what I'm doing. And yeah. all of it can be beautiful. P putting right. gas in the car, you know, driving to and from with errands, enjoying that sunshine on your face, like... Finding ways in the moment to be at peace because right. we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know, we don't know what the future holds. Right. And I don't want to be three weeks, three years, or a lifetime from now looking back going, I was always fighting for tomorrow. Right. Right. And that's how we can use our traumas and our tragedies not to keep us down but to lift us up. Um, one of the ways I've been able to swim three to five marathons a day for weeks at a time um, and keep going when it's anything but fun is when I get really tired of it and tired in general and think, this is a hell of a way to spend a life. What am I doing? I think, wait a minute. Number one, I'm accomplishing something. But number two, I'm, I'm not putting a family member in the ground. 
and wondering what just happened. I'm not laying in an oncology ward at 158 pounds wondering if I'm going to die and looking at the person next to me wondering if they've even got a week. Um, and, and so you can use those, uh, those times uh, to actually uh, recenter you and kind of be that, that high watermark where, you know, the floods came in and you almost drowned, but you didn't. So everything else is easy. Reminders a lot of, of gratitude. The therapists that I work with are young 30s, late 20s, and they'll get really upset. And they'll look at me and they're like, well, Gene, don't you care? Don't you care about what's going on? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And they're like, well, why aren't you crying? Why aren't you upset? And I'm like, is anybody dying at this point? And well, no, well, then I'm good. Um, because I've experienced what that's like, and, and many of them haven't, not in the way I have. And so we can use those times to help us remind uh, ourselves of how really great our day is we can always choose peace yeah right. and that i think that's something that we're not often taught that we can just choose peace we don't think of you and i speak for myself here as well in the past i've not thought of emotions as a choice i've thought of them right. as physical reactions you know right. you have this physical feeling and these chemicals change in your brain and this is a response to something and what part of deliberate cold exposure has taught me is this is still my choice. How I feel is my choice. How I react is my choice. And if you're choosing to despair, if you're choosing depression, if you're choosing anger, resentment, hatred, those things can fuel you. You can choose that if you're you know, looking for the deeper meaning or, or looking for a way to get to the other side. We don't have to live there and we don't have to choose that as an autonomic response. Right. And that's one of the things, if you don't mind me going back to the forge and my love of it. <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, that my uh, family, my, you know, because I live in this very close family, we get together a lot. And uh, one of the things they've noticed, um, you know, because I've had my forge for about a year and a half, almost two now. And uh, one of the things they've noticed is... I am much more what I call stress hardy. Things just don't flap me like they used to. And part of it's because of everything I've been through, but a lot of it is every day, sometimes several times a day, I'm getting in my forge. And even, you know, I know you guys, being the studs that you are, you got it down around 30, 32. But uh, this this old man keeps it at 40 and even after years it's still a shock it's just i mean my first thought is oh shit um and you just breathe through that and plymouth university has actually found that uh it, it getting in cold water like that stimulates a uh false panic attack in your brain yep and by learning how to just breathe through and stay steady and even during those uh, artificial panic attacks, when something happens in life, your body's habituated and your brain's habituated to staying even. Mm -hmm. And it has been one of the best things, um, especially during quarantine. I'd start getting a little funky or 
irritable and Bobby would look at me and she'd kind of uh, nod toward the garage and I'd be like, yeah, it's probably time, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that's one of the first things that Jason will ask me if he notices I'm getting a little worked up or stressed. He's like, how long yeah. has it been since you had an ice bath? And if wow. I have to think about it, then I already know it's yeah. been too long, whether it's a day or right. whatever. I already right. know it's been too long. And there are often times, and I, and I hear this from my clients, I hear it from people I know, I, I even do it myself, where you think, I just don't have the energy to put myself through that today. I don't feel well. I'm tired. I'm, you know, crampy. I'm this, I'm that. And you think it's going to take so much out of you to do this when in actuality, it's the one thing you can do to put it all back. When you are tired, depleted, you have nothing left to give. I've gotten in there in total tears before because I couldn't stop the tears and I couldn't stop and get to that next point of calm. And so I thought, I'm just going to sit in the ice. And sure enough, it's like pushing a button. Boom, there goes my norepinephrine. Boom, there goes my dopamine. Boom, there goes all these good things happening in my body that I can't even see going on. All I do is feel the effects. I get to just sit back and feel the effects. And so if I were to look at you and say, I have a magic potion that once you sit in it for two minutes, your life will change. You will feel better. Would you do it? I mean, you do. I do. There are a lot of people out there that are still coming on to the possibility of what this can do for you. Right. And long before I heard about you guys, I knew that the Willamette was going to be in the 40s. I knew that that was very, very cold. I knew that I was sick. I knew that I better start acclimatizing my body. So in January of 2014, in June of 2014 is when I actually swam the Willamette, I I started taking ice baths. And I was still suffering uh, from what they call traumatic bereavement. I I hadn't really slept in three years, uh, many nights. Uh, it, It was a very odd night that I didn't have at least one nightmare, but typically I'd have five or six. Um, and so my quality of sleep was really low. And, and then I started finding out I was avoiding sleep because I didn't want the nightmares. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I started trying to use everything I'd ever encouraged people to do, not only for sleep hygiene, but uh, for anxiety. And I found a lot of the advice that I'd given people over the years was just absolute nonsense. Um, but the one thing that never once failed me, I found very quickly after I started taking ice baths, it was like, oh, wow, wait a minute. I don't feel heavy and like my life's going to end and I am not just overwhelmed with grief. What happened? Oh, I just got in the ice bath and it would last an hour to two hours predictably routinely and sometimes the rest of the day and there were many times where the grief would sweep in so heavily that if I didn't get in the ice bath I wasn't going to get off Netflix that day and there were times that I took two ice baths a day Um, and this is just when I'm going to the grocery store buying a bag of ice throwing it in the tub but it was the one thing that never failed me and once I found that I had something that if I could get my butt up and just do it 
it would offer predictable routine relief. Uh, that was pretty much life-changing for me. That's kind of how it worked for me, too. I was so far in the throes of depression and anxiety of illness that I felt just at my wit's end. I felt like there was nothing for me. And then from my very first ice bath and the way that I felt immediately afterwards, and this is from someone who absolutely hates the cold, loves water, hates the cold. And I felt so filled, so joyous. And even now, almost three years later, there are no diminishing returns on taking an ice bath. Anything else I could possibly think of in life that works, like, oh, work for a while, and then I had to change it up. Oh, that worked for a while, I had to change it up. Ice baths have no diminishing returns, not that I have seen. Yeah, I've I've never known anybody to have diminishing returns, Um, and it's the same for me, too. And the cool thing for me is I turned 60 this year, which, you know, I... It just seems so damn old. Um, <laughs> but I'm leaner than I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing, what am I, if you don't mind, I know we're probably way over, but my favorite thing to do now since COVID, you know, they shut the pools. And I hated pool swimming. It was so boring anyway. Yeah. That I found a river um, close to me, and it's just this beautiful, very clear, very clean Oregon River. Uh, only 12 minutes away, it's called the Clackamas. And uh, I call it the training of truth. I'll swim a half a mile to a mile downstream, and then I'll turn back and swim upstream. And uh, it's, I've become kind of addicted to it because it's, it's, it's more mental training than anything because you turn around and start swimming upstream, and each stroke, you can see the rocks on the bottom. And each stroke, I'm just budging maybe an inch, and I know I got a mile to go. And it's so hard, but it's so much fun. And uh, it, it, that kind of training on a 60-year-old body should leave me crippled up and, and just doing nothing but sitting in a lazy boy. But then I'll come home, and I'll get in my morose cove for 10 or 20 minutes and uh, feel like a newborn, sleep really well. And wake up, and I'm not sore at all. So it's it's uh, keeping me, you know, it's boosting my metabolism, and so I'm cutting, you know, weight for three to five hours after I get out of the Morosco, and then it's taking down all my inflammation. I don't know if you've heard, but Wim Hof and his researchers are now setting out that they think one of the root causes of all disease, especially chronic illness is inflammation in the body that makes total sense to me and we are such an inflamed society and i think you know just to the testament of you being 60 years old and developing this type of practice we don't realize what our bodies are capable of and just like your dad's advice where he said just when you think you can't go any further go a little further that's where we really find what we're made of anything that we go through we can go through a little more. We don't, we don't build biceps by sitting on the couch and lifting bags of chips. We build biceps by ripping and tearing muscles. We build muscles by destroying them. We forge ourselves through bending and breaking and challenging difficult things. That's how we get stronger. We will never get stronger by sitting on the couch 
We will never get stronger by saying, okay, you know, I'm 60 years old, so according to the laws of time, my time here is done. The first person who's going to live to 150 has got to exist. And we're not going to get there by sitting on the couch. We're going to get there by pushing ourselves. We're going to get there by challenging ourselves with food regimens and fasting and physical physical exertion, seeing just how far we can go. Exactly. And I think that's the answer. And Dean, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me today and sharing your journey so much fun and you guys have given me such a gift not only uh by you know creating the morosco forge but uh also the double die you know i'm gonna be quoting that you'll be seeing that on instagram (laughs) yeah you can't double die (laughs) and then jason's uh conspiracy theory about yourself i mean you guys just are you're just real quality people, and I love not only your message, but your mission. I don't think there's really too much that the world needs more than what you guys are about. So thank you so much for not only being who you are, but having the tenacity to continue to push forward, even during tough times, and and make sure that... Uh, the message of cold water immersion keeps getting out there. You're welcome, Dean. And thank you for also uh, sharing that platform with us and being one of those messengers of hope and of health and of the options that we actually have out to us. I think we're at a state right now where you nailed it right on the head. It's about spreading this message. It's about Mm -hmm. sharing with people that there are alternatives of healing and there are alternatives, even though not everyone can have a Morotsko Forge, you can always right. dunk your face in a bowl of ice water. Right. You right. know, there are things that you can do. I'm not a fan of cold showers, but you better believe if it's all I have, it's what I would do. You know, when I travel, right. if right. I'm not traveling with a forge, I'm taking a cold shower. I'm going to do whatever right. it takes. So uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank, thank you, you for your message, you guys. If you want to find uh, Dean Hall, he is on Instagram at, at Swimming and Miracles. Dean, where else can we find you? Uh, that's probably the best place. I'm uh, on Facebook as well, or you can uh, jump onto my website at Swimming in Miracles. Yeah, so see see what Dean's up to next. He's always got um, some good information. He and his wife, Bobby, put out some really great motivational messages, and they keep it really real. The reason, One of the reasons that I keep coming back to Dean and Bobby is They are real people with real messages about real life situations. And if you're looking for a little bit of motivation, you will find it. And remind remind me what Bobby's Instagram is, too, so people can find her. Uh, Modern Body Fitness. That's right. That's right. She's one of my favorites. She keeps me going with those those motivational posts. I was going to say, not only are we real, but the the real benefit, I think, is Bobby's real good looking. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are both pretty good looking, I gotta say. Oh no, it's kind of beauty and the beast, but uh, the beast is happy. (laughs) Dean, thank you so much and thank you all for listening today. Thank you for taking the time to come along this journey of exploration with us today. You can follow us to learn more at www.morotzkoforge.com where we publish journal articles on all of your favorite deliberate cold exposure questions. You can also find us on Instagram, at Morotsko Forge, and you can hear new episodes of the Morotsko Method everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe. And remember, 
When you can learn to master your breath through the cold, you can learn to master your mind through your life.